Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Our scripture this morning comes from 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, as we've already mentioned several times, it has been a heavy week in many ways. I'm thankful for the beautiful sunshine today, but I was aware this week of a, of a lot of heaviness. Um, I felt it. I'm sure many of you have too. The things I mentioned in the prayer of lament have weighed heavily on me, killings and scandals and cover-ups. And on top of this, of course, there are the ongoing realities of world conflicts. Maybe many of us have already kind of stopped on the news cycle of all the suffering in the world and Ukraine and other places. And then on top of that, I know there are lots of personal things going on for many of you. Health issues, job loss, maybe marital conflict, bad situations with your children, wounds and hurts and confusion. I felt it this week a lot. Um, On top of all of that, just some suffering and some pain and confusion that some of my friends are going through. So it's been a heavy week, and we could even say it's a Second Corinthians kind of week. When Pastor Kevin and I decided, uh, you know, a couple months ago to have Second Corinthians be our text for our sermons this summer, we knew there'd be some great and beautiful theology in there, but we didn't anticipate how personal its themes of of suffering and difficulty and hardship and discouragement would feel to us as pastors and even really more broadly to us as Christians. But God knew, and we happily embrace his wise providence. You know, one of the beautiful things about Holy Scripture is that it's thousands of years older than all of us, and when all of us will breathe our last breath, it will continue to be speaking, and it continues to speak. And one of the things we learn from 2 Corinthians is that following Christ is often very difficult. It's actually really easy to lose heart, to lose courage, to feel like giving up. In our text for today, we're going to see how Paul, we're going to see that he felt that way, and we get to really listen in to his own wrestlings with how he handled that when he felt like giving up and losing heart. However, I think if we're honest, that I think most people here are probably pretty teachable and we, we want to learn from the Bible. 
but I wonder if many of us feel like it's actually kind of hard to relate to Paul. Like we might say, okay, great, you know, we're, we'll listen to Paul, but I bet many of us feel like we're pretty different from him. After all, he's a pastor, he's a missionary, even more than that, he's an apostle, he's a highly trained theologian, and from what we can tell, he's a pretty intense guy. <laughs> probably not very mellow, probably not super fun to hang out with, honestly. And you may be tempted to think, this guy's life is nothing like mine, so I, you know, I wanna hear from the Bible, but I can't really relate to him. I mean, he didn't have to face maybe an unreasonable boss or phone bills or inflation or toddlers throwing up on you while you're trying to get to church. But while it is true that Paul was a special man called by God in a big way, the things that tie you and me to him are actually bigger than those differences. And particularly, I want to point out that just like Paul, all of us here who are Christians are ministers of the gospel. You know, let that sink in. You may not be a theologian or a pastor, but according to the New Testament, to be a Christian is to be a priest, is to be a minister of the gospel, to be salt and light in the world, to be ambassadors of the king. We might have different gifts and callings and different roles and positions, different opportunities and settings, but what every Christian shares with the Apostle Paul and we share with each other is that if you are a Christian, you're actually a minister of the gospel, one who is called and empowered by God to testify to who God is and what he's done in your life, to bring light and mercy and grace to those around you, to do, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, to do good works so that people might see them and glorify God. Do you remember how the Gospel of Matthew ends? We were in it last year. It ends with this really famous passage that we call the Great Commission, where Jesus gives these marching orders. That's not just for the apostles. It's not just for the disciples, the famous ones. Those are marching orders for all Christians that we go and we make disciples. Now, if you're a Christian today, you maybe you know that already, but you may have forgotten about it. And I want you to think about your own testimony for a moment. If you're a Christian and you, if you think about how you got to this point, I'm sure for many of you, there was like a professional pastor that probably played a role in that. But I think for most people, it wasn't only that. There was probably some neighbor or a faithful Sunday school teacher or a parent or a brother or a sister or an uncle or a coworker. In fact, if you think about your testimony, there were probably a, a whole bunch of regular Christians who helped you in your walk with Christ. And you see, God uses all of his people as ministers of the gospel to do his good work of bringing light into darkness and leading people into this fullness of life. In fact, I love hearing people's testimonies. This is one of the favorite things I love about a, a baptism Sunday here in the sojourn tradition is that we're gonna get to hear a testimony and I love to hear testimonies because there are always all these contributions that regular Christians made in somebody's life and maybe somebody a long time ago that you, that person didn't even know the impact they had. And you may have forgotten this morning that that's you too. You are an essential part of God's light into darkness work in other people's lives. 
and to riff on the old saying that it takes a village, let me say it takes a kingdom. It takes a kingdom of priests, as Peter will call us, which is all of those following Jesus, whether you are a stay-at-home mom or a dentist or an office worker or a jewelry salesperson or an accountant or a student, God's work of the light going into the darkness comes through all of his people. But it can be really hard and it can be really discouraging to try to be this kind of light, to try to be a minister to others. Because a lot of times many people don't want to hear. Many people may be here for a little while and tube out. Many people have trouble getting free from their addictions. Many people end up being if you remember Jesus' parable of the four soils, many people end up being second and third soil people where they come along for a little while, but then they just walk away. It was true for Jesus in his own ministry. It was true for Paul. And so we shouldn't be surprised that it's true in our lives as well. That as we seek to be faithful testimonies to God, the result is gonna be mixed and it's gonna feel difficult. And in our verses from 2 Corinthians 4 today, again, we get to overhear Paul describe how he himself dealt with that and what motivated him to not lose heart in the midst of seeking to bless others. And so I want to just look there again. We'll put the verse on the screen if you have a Bible on your phone or a, a physical Bible. Let's just look at these verses for a few minutes together and overhear what Paul has to say. Let me point us to verse 1 again. He says, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. So just right at the beginning, he acknowledges the potential that he feels and we feel to lose heart. And next week, one of the great passages I'll be speaking from next week, we'll see him talk about this more. But he says he doesn't lose heart. He doesn't give up in seeking to minister to others because of God's mercy that we have. What does he mean by that? Well, the key in that verse is to pay attention to that first word, that therefore. Whenever you see a therefore, always remember that there's something that was said before. And this goes back to chapter 3, verses 7 to 18, that Pastor Kevin spoke from last week. And just to summarize what's going on in chapter 3, it's a really important chapter in the Bible. Paul tells us that in the Old Testament, God revealed himself as glorious and as mighty but it was temporary and it was limited. And in fact, it mostly brought condemnation on people because of their faithlessness. But Paul tells us that something new and radically different has now happened. Far greater than Moses, Jesus, who is the son of God himself, the exact representation of God's radiance, God incarnate in the person of Jesus, now has come and the one in whom God fully dwells, he has come into the world and revealed God fully and permanently. And in 3.18, one of the most precious, I think, texts in the whole Bible, Paul tells us that by God's own spirit, he is in the business of actually transforming you and me from being dead and broken and weak and condemned to actually being full and growing in wholeness as we see God, that we're being transformed from glory to glory. We're being actually remade into someone else who we're meant to be. And Paul says, this is mercy. And this is a mercy that motivates him. 
So rather than losing heart, Paul was motivated to embrace his role as a witness in the world, a light in the darkness. And then look at what he says in the next verse. He says, so I don't lo- we don't lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, the Christian lives in a way that is honest, open, authentic, not manipulating people or ideas, not twisting scripture to gain power over others. You know, this week as we were looking at this text and as all the things happen, especially uh, related to the, the Southern Baptist Convention report of sex scandal, it was hard not to see the providence of this, how, what, how that is the opposite of what Paul says and the opposite of how we are to, leave, to live. Renouncing secret and shameful ways, not using deception, not distorting the word of God. And that was a problem in the first century and it's a problem today as well. In Paul's day, especially in a city like Corinth, there were a lot of like traveling philosophers or traveling like um, self-help speakers in many ways who were really good at like giving this awesome uh, speech in a public place and they would make a lot of money doing this. And Paul says, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. We can also think of Acts chapter eight. Do you remember this as the gospel's going forth and power is going forth and people are being healed and people are receiving gifts of the spirit that are very obvious, like speaking in tongues. And there's this guy, there's a sorcerer. There's a guy named Simon Magus. He's a, he's a magician that is a sorcerer. He's actually some, seems to have some kind of power and he's probably making a lot of money doing it. He hears Philip preach. He becomes a Christian, and so it seems. And then when he sees Peter and others lay hands on people and that those people receive the the gift of the Spirit, he goes to them and says, can I buy that gift? (laughs) Right? There's always a hunger for power in us humans. And Paul and his own opponents in Corinth, they were peddling the Word of God. And of course, that happened in the ancient world and it happens today as well. Often with prosperity, gospel, a lot of kind of television evangelism kind of stuff is often really people distorting and and trying to make money off of us with your $25 prayer cloth anointed in the River Jordan or whatever it is. And many other ways that people might peddle the word of God for their own gain. Paul says, I'm not gonna play any of those games. I'm not gonna try to one up and have a bigger church than them. He's gonna live a simple, honest, clean and clear life. Aware of doing this in the sight of God. In fact, I love how he describes it in verse five, and I think this just speaks right to our culture today as well. He says in four or five, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Do you see what that's saying? The temptation for people in power and especially people who are ministers of the gospel of all sorts is to make that about you being the Lord over someone using that power differential for your favor. And he says, I'm not preaching myself as Lord. My role is to be a servant, even a slave. No celebrity pastors, no big platforms, no powerful personalities that run over other people, no self-aggrandizement with a thin veneer of Christianese on top of it. Paul says the way that we all Christians live in the world is this simple and plain place of service. It's beautiful. 
But Paul's also very realistic. He realizes that even as he tries to do that faithfully, as he tries to love people, as you and I try to love and serve people, many people will still reject the message of the gospel. Maybe you can think of someone that you've tried to live faithfully toward, a brother or a sister or maybe your parents or in-laws or a neighbor or an old college friend or a boss, and they just don't care or don't want to listen. And Paul's aware of that. Look at verses three and four. He describes this. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. And what's happening here, if you think back to chapter three, or you can go back there and look, Paul's kind of riffing on something he said there. He had just said that Moses had to put a veil over his face because of the fading glory, but now that veil is removed through Jesus and we can see God clearly. But then he, you know, he comes back to this and kind of says, there's not a veil over Jesus's face. He is shining, God is shining forth clearly through Jesus, but there's still often a veil over us. There's still often a veil over our eyes. The light of God is shining clearly forth through Jesus, that's clear, but we humans are blind to it. We may feel, I think we do often feel the warmth and light of something. We can tell something's there, but if our eyes are not open, we cannot see that it's Jesus. And he calls this work the work of the lowercase God of this world. And I know that's a really weird sounding phrase, and Christians actually throughout the church's history have kind of struggled with what this means. But I, I think it's clear that this is referring to Satan or the devil. Jesus calls Satan a couple times the prince of this world. Paul calls him the power of the air. We can think of uh, Jesus's tempta- or Satan's temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4, when Satan actually offers him all the kingdoms of the world. So apparently there's there's some authority, some limited authority that he's been given. And, and there's a mystery here in the Bible that Satan is a created being. He's not in any way equal with God, but he's allowed some limited authority in this world for now and only over those who are not part of Christ and his kingdom. And his power is to blind people, to blind eyes and hearts and minds. But as Paul says back in chapter three, This veil of blindness is removed when by the power of the Spirit, someone turns to the Lord. You know, when you read the Gospels, there's all kinds of miracles that happen, but often the most powerful and the most important ones are when Jesus heals someone who is blind. There are many of those, but probably the most famous one and the longest one for sure is John chapter nine, this amazing story of this man who was born blind. And John tells this really interesting kind of dramatic story about it and all you may recall that, you could read it this afternoon. But what's really interesting about that story is that from the beginning of the Gospel of John up to that point, there's been this repeated refrain of come and see. Jesus is inviting people to come and see. Other Other followers of Jesus are inviting other followers, come and see, come and see. And then at this really important point in, in John's, the Gospel of John's story, we see this man who literally goes from not seeing to seeing, not only physically, but of course, that's always a picture of spiritual reality as well. It happened to the Apostle Paul, you may remember. He was literally knocked off his donkey as he was en route 
in the book of Acts to be involved in the persecution and killing of Christians. He goes blind and then he comes to see. It happened to me 33 years ago. I went from not seeing to seeing and it's happened to many of you as well. And the idea of the God of this world blinding unbelievers, that may sound discouraging to you. It may, may sound upsetting to you, but you need to understand the point. It's an explanation for why, despite God clearly shining forth through Jesus, why many people, and even ones we faithfully try to love and serve, why they cannot see. But the point of it is that God can and God does open eyes. In his kind and mysterious providence, he does open eyes. And so we pray. We pray for God to do so for those we love and those we're witnessing to, that God would actually remove blindness, and he does. And this leads us to our last verse, verse 6. How does this happen? We come to this most radiant verse of verse 6. Look at it there with me once more. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. This is one of these like $64,000 verses. You have all these like big ideas in there. And in the previous chapter, again in chapter three, Paul again retold us the story of the Exodus and explained that Jesus is greater than Moses. And now he goes back even farther into the history of creation itself and reminds us that at the very moment that God created the world, he did that by speaking light into darkness. And so he says, now in our blindness, in our darkness, in our brokenness, in our sin, in our deadness, God actually speaks light into our hearts, into our innermost being, into our true selves. And I think Paul is not only thinking of Genesis here, he may be thinking of what we call the transfiguration. You may remember the story from the Gospels where on this mountaintop experience, Peter, James, and John got to see a glimpse for a moment of Jesus as he really was and is in all his glory. And they, they saw his face as radiant. And later, Peter reflecting on that said this about it. Let me read for you what Second Peter says. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus, too, similar to what Paul's saying. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. Peter says, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have also the prophetic message of something completely reliable, and you'll do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You see, this is the same fundamental principle that Paul's talking about is true for us. As you seek to be a minister of the gospel in the world, you don't need to have great gifts or clever stories, but as you've heard and seen God's glory penetrating into your own heart, you simply testify to that. That's what Peter's saying. It's what Paul's saying. That as we see God at work in our hearts, you don't have to be super skilled or gifted. You don't have to be a called pastor. You simply testify to the fact that God is transforming your life. And I think how this whole text fits together and what Paul's experiencing and what 
I think we experience as well is a universal human principle that really drives all of us. And that is that you and I can endure any hardship, you and I can endure any difficulty when we know that the goal is worth it. Let me say that again. You and I can endure hardship and difficulty. You and I can not lose heart when we know that the goal is going to be worth it. Many years ago, I ran across this book. It's probably 20 years old now, Michael Horowitz's book, uh, Confederates in the Attic. I don't know if some of you have seen this. And it's very interesting. He's a journalist, and he spent a year traveling throughout the South as a, with, as a Civil War reenactor. And as you may know, may, you probably know, there are a lot of people each year that reenact the battles of the Civil War. That is, they dress in the uniforms, they form regiments by state, they eat the food of the soldiers, they run across the battlefields, fighting, shooting blanks at each other out of the 19th century muskets. And again, Horowitz is this journalist who, he decided he wanted to sort of understand what made these people tick. And so, with anything, he discovered with these reenactors, there were weakened warriors, there were people that would just do it occasionally, but there was a, a small group of people who were the true diehards, these people that would travel about and do reenactments year-round. They would study the lives and details of every battle, and they would join permanent regiments and plan their travel schedules to mimic that of the armies of the North and South. In fact, they were so detailed that they ate the exact diet of the soldiers and planned their days so that the, at 10.32, they could be charging across the field at the exact moment. Why? Well, what he found was that for these diehard reenactors, this is their religion. This is the reason they go to these great lengths of sacrifice and hardship to live as Civil War soldiers, to eat hard tack and molasses and, and run across these muddy fields where in 100 degree weather wearing a, a wool uniform. It's because they're hoping that somehow they'll be able to be transported back to this moment of 150 years ago and have this like spiritual high. That's just one example of what we humans do that for the perceived goal or for, for what we think is going to be worth it, we will endure any hardship. It's really just another example of what we do all the time. Some of you recently graduated from various schools and degrees and training and you put in a lot of hours and work to do that because you perceive the goal is worth it. Young people, many of you, when you're going out for a sport, you endure lots of practices and a summer regimen of eating and, and various things, and, and parents do that for the sake of their children because you perceive it's worth it. Guys who are pursuing a wonderful woman as a wife, what lengths you will go to buying flowers and candy and spending time in jewelry stores, if that's what is desired. Or ladies, the same. I think of my dear daughter, Mandy, and I asked her if I could speak about her in this. Uh, we're not a camping family. Some of you are camping families. I respect that. I would prefer to sleep in a hotel, uh, but I appreciate that people are camping. We're not a camping family. She's not a camping person, but she's in love. <laughs> and she's engaged, as you may know, and she went camping uh, with her fiance and friends. And I just had to think, that's what you do when you're in love. <laughs> you forfeit a good night's sleep. <laughs> but for our education, for love, 
for a job. We, we all know how to endure hardship because we know that what's on the other end is worth it. That's the same principle at work here. How did Paul not lose heart? How do you and I not lose heart in faithfully being witnesses of God's work in the world despite all kinds of opposition and discouragement? Through remembering and reminding ourselves what the end goal is. That we have experienced God's glorious light shining. Can you remember, you who have been following Christ for a while, can you remember how dark it was before you started following him? How confusing it was? How meaningless life was? But to we remember that we're actually being transformed and we're becoming more whole people. We're experiencing freedom and power and wholeness and that we want that for others as well. This is what motivates us to not lose heart in the midst of being regular ministers of the gospel, spreading the same light that we've received as God gives light to us, then we refract it out into 500 prisms of God's light to other people. For the last few days, Thursday to Saturday, I was up in Indianapolis at a great church up there doing much teaching and training. And on Friday, kind of at the last minute, I had the opportunity to connect with my old college roommate from my NIU days who lives up there. I became a Christian as a freshman, an 18-year-old. And to use today's vernacular, I was a hot mess of long-haired, non-Christian craziness. And Glenn was a solid Christian guy who took a risk on me and said, yeah, you can be my roommate. And he had a huge impact on me in those crucial years. And after we graduated, Glenn went on staff with Camp's Crusade or crew now. And for the last 30 plus years, he has ministered faithfully to students and people all over the world here in the States and all over the world as well. And he got married to Nancy. I was in the wedding. They had four wonderful children. But after 19 years, Nancy got cancer and died. Uh, leaving Glenn and their children uh, ages 13 to six, 13 down to six. And if some of you have been around here a long time, you may remember many years ago, I preached a sermon and put a picture up there in my purple suit uh, because I bought that suit because we had a big dance party, a disco party for Nancy shortly before she died. That's what she wanted. Well, the last five years have been very dark and very difficult time for Glenn. Uh, he's been faithful to seek the Lord and to be a person of love and peace for others. And as we sat at lunch on Friday and just talked about our lives, he said, you know, when we face hardships, when we face discouragements, we face darkness, we have a choice about how we're going to respond to God in the midst of it, whether we're going to give up or whether we're gonna draw nearer to God. And he said, God's been faithful to me and God has sustained me. And God has continued to use him through this veil of tears, even in the midst of all the suffering and brokenness, and probably even through it more, God has used him to minister to thousands. And it was especially sweet to get together with him Friday. He had to fit me into his schedule because right after this, he had to go to his dance class because this coming Friday, he's getting married uh, to this wonderful woman. And they are 
going to Brady Bunch style it and have all seven of their now kids uh, living in his house. And I was really struck by the beauty of Glenn's story, really a story of light shining forth in darkness. Like the Apostle Paul, like us, like Glenn, there were many dark and lonely nights and days and weeks and months and years. We are tempted to lose heart. But he continued to pour himself out and found God, and found God faithful as he poured himself out, even through tears, to, to, to reflect the light that he had received into the lives of others. And Glenn's life could have gone very differently in that, and yours and mine can too. But the great truth and the hope of the message of Jesus is in the middle of our laments and our confusion and our darkness and our discouragement and our pain and our grief, there is a light shining forth, even as it did at creation and now into our hearts, bringing us new creation life. And so today, I don't have any application points for you. I simply wanted to be an instrument of encouragement to you to invite you to pay attention to the good work God is doing in freeing your heart, and then just invite you to open your life to others as a reflection of that light. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.